The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. When it comes to our relationships, there's all different kinds of love that we have in our relationships. So there's friendship kind of love. And that can be really powerful. Friendship love can last for an entire lifetime. Can really just be devoted to each other, serve each other, sacrifice for each other, be constantly there. Friendship kind of love is is very powerful. There's romantic kind of love that can also be very, very powerful in our lives. Marital love, even more powerful. It's the type of love where you're just choosing to be committed to someone for your entire life. In fact, probably marital love is probably the most powerful kind of love that two people can experience. But there's another kind of love that is really instinctual, it, and it's unique in the fact that it just kind of awakens inside of, inside of someone, and it's just really compelling without even trying, and that's parental love. And when a, a couple has a child that they're called to take care of, or they have a child, Man, there's something that just awakens inside of them, this kind of this nurturing instinct. There's just this instinctual kind of love that it's just really extraordinarily powerful. It's unconditional. It's ceaseless. It's not stopping. Parental love is really powerful. And, and, and in a way, no matter what is going on in the person's life, I mean, it's, it's there. Now, it, of course, parental love can, can be broken, but the, the ins- instinct there is something really amazing. So... Um, not too long ago, I was playing with our, with our kids. I've got um, my, my daughter's uh, two and a half, my son's one, and, and I play this game with my daughter where she tackles Dada. And so I'll, I'll sit down on the floor, and I'll go like this, and she starts on the other side of the room, and she just runs as fast as her little two-and-a-half-year-old body can move, these little legs going as fast as she can, and she just throws herself at me, and I grab her, and then I fall backwards, and then I tickle her. And um, that's her tackling Dada. Well, I look over and I see uh, our one-year-old son, and he's looking up and he's got this smile on his face. And even though we've played this game so often, it was like the first time he really like took it in. And so he gets all excited and he's starting to crawl towards me. And I realize, oh, he wants to tackle Dada too. And so he starts crawling over and and he he gets pretty close and he reaches up his hand. So I, I pick him up. So he's standing, kind of teetering, and then he takes one unsure step, and he's kind of moving slowly, and then right at the last minute, I grab him and fall backwards so that he tackles Dada, and he's sitting right on top of me, he's looking down, this big smile, and, and a connection happened. And I'm not talking about a relational connection, there was a string of drool that connected us. It came from his mouth, one solid string of drool to my chin, okay, I didn't know that drool could actually do something like this. It was not moving, just like a column, okay? And I'm just sitting there, just this constant drool between us, and he's just happy, and I say, buddy, I love you, but that is so disgusting, man. And so I put him down, and, and you know, there's something about parental love that, you know, just overcomes a lot, but I think there might be a type of love that is even more powerful than just parental love. It's motherly love. And as much as I can't imagine loving my kids anymore, man, when I watch Rebecca and just her love 
for our kids. I mean, it, it is something else entirely. And so I, I, I put Nehemiah down, and we did the tackle dad routine a couple more times, but I put him down, and I'm like, man, look at Rebecca. Did you see that? I was disgusting. I have drool, not my drool, his drool on my face. It was just disgusting. And, and she looks at me and just goes, lightweight. Let me tell you a story. Why did her voice change? That's scaring me, okay? So she proceeds to tell me this story and remind me of this middle-of-the-night vomit-type scenario, which the details of which I cannot tell you, okay? They never need to be spoken of again in the English language, okay? And she reminds me of this story. And man, just watching a, a mother's love, it is Man, it is constant. It is day after day after day. No matter what, it is unceasing, never taking a day off. And I think we just got to stop and just appreciate our, our mothers here for their, their love. Incredible. <clears throat> we love you, ladies. And um, there's something so powerful. And here's what's so powerful about a, a mother's love is it's communicating something very fundamental for each of us. It communicates unconditional acceptance. And yes, it can, be, it can be broken, but the instinct is really that kind of love from a mother to a child. It's no matter what, there's, there's, you're accepted. You belong. It's acceptance. And it's this really powerful force that we carry with us all of our lives. In fact, I might argue that this question of acceptance or this question, do I belong? It's one of those questions that's really looming in maybe all of our human interactions. Maybe in, in almost every room that we're in, where there's another person, that we're really asking this question of, do I belong? Am I accepted? And that's something that we ask throughout our lives, and it's this looming question. We may not even think about it in those terms, but it's something that we're striving to get an answer for. We're going to look at a, a passage in a book called Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 7, that addresses this question, and it really helps us think through this dynamic of belonging and this big looming question of do I belong. Here's the background on this story. Uh, this just, uh, takes place a few hundred years before Jesus, and this takes place in the area of Jerusalem. And at this time in history, Jerusalem has been in, in ruins. People had been taken out into exile, and they have slowly started to return. They were taken over by Babylon. They've started to return, and they've rebuilt the city physically. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls. They're in the process of rebuilding their homes, but the city is pretty much being rebuilt. The basics have been rebuilt of the city, but now they're rebuilding the community, and they're rebuilding the spiritual community that's supposed to exist in the city of God in Jerusalem. And this is one of the first things that they do. And it, it's really interesting, and it springboards us into an important question. Look at with me in Nehemiah chapter 7. We are going to start in verse 5. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. It's going to be up here on the screens as well as in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Nehemiah Chapter 7, verse 5. This is Nehemiah speaking. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first 
and I found written in it. Now hang on for a second before we go farther and they see what was written in these books. Let me just give you the background of what's happening. They're rebuilding the spiritual community and God puts it in Nehemiah's heart that he wants to basically take like a census. And remember, these are people that have just moved back into the area of Jerusalem and they find these books that give these lists of genealogies and so they're going to go through these books and people are going to say, oh yes, these are my ancestors and show their ancestry and so that they can determine who is, by descent, part of Israel. And so we have one of these, um, these p- chapters that we're looking at, one of these chapters that's all this kind of gene- genealogical detail. And we're not going to look at all of it, but we're just going to look at it just briefly. But that's what they're doing. They're enrolling everyone. They're taking a census. They're, they have these books of genealogy, and people are finding, are they descent of Israel? Are they, are they uh, descended in to this nation? So here's what it says in verse 6. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his, to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Re-Amiah, uh, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem, and Be. Anah. Okay, that was exhausting. I got through it, though. Okay. <clears throat> These are the people who have returned from exile. Okay, let's keep going. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. We're just going to read a couple of these. The sons of Shephathah... Okay, who cares? 372. The sons of... I'm sorry, Lord, it's important. Okay, Shephathiah, 372. The sons of Era, 600. And 52. Okay, why ever agreed on this passage? I don't know. All right. Um, This is a list, and if you keep going through this chapter, you'll just see name after name after name and all of these numbers. And I don't know if you've ever tried reading the Bible on your own, and maybe you went into the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and you're reading through it, and you get to one of these chapters, and it's just filled with all this genealogy, and you're like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? I can't pronounce any of these names. I, I don't know who they are. I, I don't, like, all these numbers. What in the world am I supposed to do with that? And, and these, are, these are, are interesting from the fact that this is historical. These are real people. This is the census they took. This is part of what shows you the Bible is not just made up. If the Bible was made up, why would this stuff be in here? This is historical data from this census. And it's showing you the people that are in It's showing you the people who found and could link their genealogy to Israel. These are the people who say, look, see, I'm part of Israel. These are the people saying, look, you can see my descendants. I I am an Israelite. I am part of this community. I'm part of this city. Now, what's interesting, and this is the reason we're stopping on this passage, is I want to go all the way to the end. And I want you to see, just we're going to take a, a quick sampling of it at the very end, because it also records for all of history those who couldn't find their descendants and, and their connection to Israel genealogically. Okay, and you say, well, what's the big deal of that? Well, let's look. This is verse 61. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emir. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 
642. Here's what's interesting about this record. They're not going to kick him out. It's not that you can't live here if you can't find your descent. It's not that they're going to be welcomed in. You can be part of Israel. You can be adopted into that community. But I want you to look at that wording because it's so interesting. You notice it says they couldn't prove that they belonged. Imagine you're those people there that everyone, the entire community is trying to find their ancestry. They're all trying to find that they belong to this people, Israel, so to speak. That's the wording they use. And imagine you're part of this minority that can't find that you're descended from Israel. And notice the wording it uses. They felt like they couldn't prove that they belonged. That's such powerful wording, especially especially when you take into consideration that they would absolutely be welcomed in. You could be adopted in. You can say, yes, I want to worship, I want to be part of this community that worships the creator God. They would be adopted in, but look at that language. They couldn't prove that they belonged. Now, here's what's so powerful about that. I wonder if that language is really what's going on in most of our human interactions. Like, I wonder if most uh, within our friendships, with coworkers, with neighbors, with people that we know, I wonder if most of the time you could really boil down the way we talk, the way we talk about ourselves or our families, the way we dress, the w- w- things that we do. I wonder if you could boil that down, the way we posture ourselves and talk about the things we want to do, the things we have done. Like, I wonder if so much of that, if you boiled it down, there's really one gigantic question looming in the room. And I wonder if that question is, do I belong? Am I accepted? Will you accept me? I mean, think about this. Let's just rewind, because I think we can see this throughout so many parts of our life. And the younger we are, the more obvious it is to see it. But I'm not sure that it's any better when we're older. It's just maybe a little more sophisticated. But let's rewind. Go all the way back to your childhood. And I want you to go back, and and maybe you're a teacher, so you you can visualize this. But I want you to think about the school lunchroom. I want you to think about everyone sitting at their own tables. And the worst possible scenario when you're a student and when you're a child and you're in school is that you don't have a table to sit at and you're sitting by yourself. Okay, that's the worst possible scenario. Okay, maybe you've even even seen that as a teacher. You work in the school system and you can see really what everyone wants to do is have a table, a group of friends, where they belong. And then you're watching, I mean, it's thick in that lunchroom, and even at this table, you're watching their interactions, and the way they're talking, the way they're joking, the way they're bullying, the way they're putting others down, the way they're, they're talking about themselves, or they're posturing themselves, or they're trying to get the people around them to like them. I want you to think about what is that question, if you boil it down, I want to be accepted by this table. I want to belong. I want to have a group that I belong to. Okay, we can see that that's obvious. And only just gets slightly more sophisticated as we get older. So now you're in high school. And maybe it's not lunchroom tables anymore, but it's groups. And there's this group you belong to because this is the type of clothes you wear, the type of music you listen to, or this is the sport you play, or the extracurricular that you do together, or this is the club that you're a part of. And, and you have that group. And the worst case scenario is that you don't have a group. 
is you want a group to belong to. And if that group rejects, man, that is, that is painful. But it just gets slightly more sophisticated as it goes along, doesn't it? So now you, you're out of high school, you're out of, you're out of school. If you did more school, now all of a sudden you're in a job, and now you're looking around. You're, this is your career. This is the industry you want to work in. You're watching other people, and you're saying, look, I want to be accepted by this industry. I want to be accepted by this job. And you look around at the people you work with, and you see, okay, how do they dress? What do they drive? What do they do? How do they spend their time? And all of a sudden you're pattering patterning off of them how they work and what they do and you want to be accepted by this group or this industry or maybe it's by your success that this industry will say okay you are accepted because you've succeeded in this industry but maybe it gets to a place where you're saying you know what I, I want to be accepted I want to belong to a person and so then you're you find someone that you can belong to you say okay I want to I want to be married I want to have someone that that I feel like this sense of we're one, we're a team. And you belong, you search out someone to belong to. Or maybe it's, you have kids and now you're saying, okay, there's this group and they have kids too. And well, what schools are they putting their kids in? Or what do they do? Where do they go on vacations with their family? Or, you know, what sports leagues do they put their kids in? And so all of a sudden, I want to belong to this group. And so it's just slightly more sophisticated than lunchroom ethics. But the reality is I wonder if the vast majority of our conversations and the vast majority of our interactions really boil down to asking, do I belong? It's a neighborhood that I move in, and I look at how, what do they do with their house, and what do, they, you know, what do these people do, and what do they drive, and where do they go? And, and it, asking that question, do I belong? Am I accepted? Let's drill down another level. I wonder if that looming question, do I belong, that's really what's underneath the greatest hurts and the greatest brokenness in our life. I wonder if deep down, maybe there, you say, look, you described a mother's love or parental love. Man, that was not my story. Man, I look back and I, I, there's a lot of pain and brokenness in my family that I grew up in. And you say, you know, that's one of the biggest brokenness that I carry, one of the biggest pains that I carry through my life, and I, I wish it hasn't affected me and shaped me as much as it has, but if I'm honest, that's one of the biggest things that I'm carrying with me through my life, and I wonder if some of the greatest sources of pain and brokenness come from a lack of acceptance or belonging. It's that person that you got married to, and you said, this will be the person that I belong to, and then that marriage fell apart, and you've carried that pain and that brokenness with you. You say, man, this is that question, that looming question, that really is, and that pain reveals that down deep, man, that is such a foundational question for our souls. Whether we realize it, that we're asking it or not, what we're saying, the question we're asking in, in the rooms that we're in is, do I belong? Will they accept me? But I wonder if the reason why we ask that and I wonder if the reason that's so foundational to who we are is because really we're asking that of one particular being. 
And I wonder if the reason that we ask that of in a romantic relationship or a friendship relationship or of society in general or of an industry or of friends or whoever it is that we're trying to prove by the way we dress, the way we spend money, where we live, the successes we have, we're trying to prove that we belong. And I wonder if the reason that we're so bent on doing that and the reason it's so primal to our souls, I wonder, a hypothesis, I wonder if the reason we're asking that question is because deep down there's one being we need to answer that question. I suggest it, and maybe you'll, you'll say, I, I don't know about this, but I wonder if we are ultimately deep down asking God, do I belong? Do you accept me? You say, look, I don't know, man. I could go weeks, maybe months without thinking about God. I'm not sure that's what it is. Well, uh, man, maybe it's not consciously what we're asking, but I wonder if deep down we're asking God that question, the one who created us. We're saying, do I belong? Am I accepted by you? I wonder if that creator, the one that designed our personality and designed designed our, our body types and designed our DNA and knows exactly how we were put together and knit us together, the one that invented us and the unique components of us. I wonder if we ultimately, deep down, maybe in recesses we didn't know were there, we're wanting to know from our creator, do you accept me? Do you accept what you've made? I wonder if we're asking the person who knows us the most intimately, the one who knows everything that we've ever done, has been present for every second, every thought, everything from our past, everything from our present, even knows our future. He knows the things that no one else can see. The one who knows us even better than we do for all the good and the bad and the ugly. I wonder if ultimately what we're really, really asking is you've seen me. My soul naked before you. I can hide parts of me from every other person. I can have a facade. I can look good on the outside, but man, there's only one being that knows the recess of my heart. I can even fool myself, but there's one being that is not fooled and knows me with intimacy that no human relationship could ever have. I wonder if deep down we're really, whether we realize it or not, saying, God, with all that you've seen, do you accept me? You know, there's a kind of love that you can find on this earth that you may not be able to find anywhere else. It's uh, the love of a mother. Seems like a mother will accept us no matter what. It's unconditional and it's ceaseless. But what about the love of a creator for, for us? What's that love like? What does he see when he looks down at the one that he made and the one that he knows? Well, the scripture is not silent to that. I want to read you a passage. It's in 1 John Chapter 3, let me just read this to you. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It says, You want to know what kind of love? What, what does that love look like? Is it a friendship love? Is it, what, what, how do you describe, how do you categorize the type of love from God for His creation? He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Do you realize what he's saying? He says, you want to know if you had to categorize the type of love that God feels for you, here's what it would be. It would be like that type of love 
that, we, that is just awakened instinctual inside of him. He sees us and he says, I can't help but be drawn to you and love you. It's this ceaseless, not stopping, unconditional love that he's, he's rooting for us and he's crying with us and he's watching over us and he's feeling protective for us. He's saying, I have that kind of love that just awakens inside, that's instinctually drawn, this primal draw to, between you and me. He says, you are my creation. You are like a child to me. It's this parental kind of love that I have for you that no one can stop. That's the kind of love that he has for you. But you realize he he goes further. He doesn't just say it's not just a parental kind of love. Look what he says. This is is another passage found in Isaiah. This is what he says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? He says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Do you realize that God here is referring to his love for you like a motherly love? He says, you've seen a mother in her passion for her child and her selflessness and her sacrifice, this instinctual, driven, ceaseless sacrifice for her child. He says, I've seen it. God's saying, I've seen every mother that has ever existed. I've seen the greatest, most committed mothers you've ever imagined. Mothers that would blow you away with their unconditional, unstopping love. And he says, and even they don't compare to the type of love that I have for you. Nothing can stop it. It's unconditional. We only get a hint of it when we look at the human relationships that we've got. He's like, this is the best illustration I could have. It's just a hint of my love. He says, I look down at you. You belong to me. I didn't just birth you. I made you. I designed you. While you were in your mother's womb, I knit you together. I planned for you. I mapped out your DNA. I mapped out what would happen. I, I have planned for I've designed you. And you know what he says when he looks down? He doesn't say, well, it's just average. Oh, it's okay. It's regular. It's unique. No, he says, that right there, you, that I designed with your personality and your body type and your DNA and all the nuances of you, he says, you, you're a masterpiece to me. He says, I look down at you. He says, there's no one that knows you like I know you. He says, I've seen every second of your life when you've been awake or asleep. He says, I've seen things that you don't even know about you. I understand you better than you do. I've heard every thought. I'm never fooled by your rationalization. I'm never fooled by your self-deception. I know you. I've seen the worst moments, the most vulnerable moments, and I've seen the best moments and the most victorious moments. And here's what he says. And all that I've seen I accept you right there where you're at. I love you. You belong to me. I accept you just how you are. Some of us may be here and say, look, I hear the illustration and the metaphor that you're giving. It makes sense. I get it. He he loves us like like a parent, like a father, like a mother. I got it. I hear you. But some of us are here saying this morning, you know what, I'll be honest though, that wasn't, That's not a metaphor I'm familiar with. Man, my home that I grew up in was broken. I didn't feel that kind of acceptance. You're going to have to do more. I'm struggling to grasp what that means. Well, then here's the picture of his love. 
he looks down at each one of us and he says, they're so far from me because of the sin and the brokenness in our life. He says, I see all that's happened in your life and the bad decisions that you've made. And, and while I still accept you, I'm brokenhearted about the destruction you've brought into your life. And he says, I'm calling you back to me. But he looks down and he sees all of our sin and he says, even their sin, it's not going to stop me. How much does he love you? God came down to earth as a man, God in the flesh. And God condescended to walk among us like a human in the person of Jesus Christ. And he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross, blood streaming down from his wounds and in, in profound physical agony. He dies on the cross, but there's more happening. The Son of God was dying and God was saying, I'm going to ca- count this as punishment for all sins so that I can freely offer forgiveness to everyone. This covers over your sin, your past And all the things in your past, it wipes it away as far as the east is from the west. This covers over your present and all the things you've got yourselves wrapped in in your present. He says, and this covers over the future. You are now, because of the cross of Christ, paying for your sins, you are in a state of forgiveness. And Jesus dies on the cross and he rose again from the dead saying, it's done, it's paid for. There's nothing left to be done for your sins. There's nothing left. There's nothing you have to do. You just need to run back to me. He says, I'm just sitting here with my arms open, saying, run at me, waiting to just take you into his arms. Some of us are here this morning, and here's uh, what I believe, probably some of us are in this place, where you say, look, I know Jesus, I, I've put my faith, I, I've believed, I believe that Jesus died on, my cross, died on the cross for me, the cross I should have paid, I believe that, I put my faith in Jesus a long time ago, I'd call myself a Christian. But some of you are here this morning and what you're saying is, look, if I'm honest, I feel a thousand miles away from Jesus. I feel a thousand miles away from God. And you say, look, this is the first time I've been in church in a while or, or you know, I just feel like I'm not even sure God wants me back. Here's what you need to know. There's, there's not all this climbing and clawing back to God you have to do. You say, look, I, I feel like I have to be in church for a couple months or pray a lot or read a lot of the Bible before God will welcome me back. I've got I've to do a lot to earn his approval and earn his acceptance again. And God's saying, no, I'm your father. I'm sitting here with a, with a fatherly love, with a motherly love. I'm sitting here with my arms open and saying, today, right now, run back into my arms. I'll take you back. We'll start fresh right now. Some of you need to make that run today. Others of you are here this morning and you're saying, look, I'm a thousand miles away from God because I've, I've, I've never done the Jesus thing before. I don't really know where I'm at with God. I don't have any kind of relationship with God. I, I'm not sure where I stand. I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus. I'm not sure if I believe what, what Jesus, but I want to. And some of you are here saying, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to run to him. I want to begin a relationship with God. I want to believe that all my sins, past, present, and future are washed away, but I just don't know. I feel like there's more that I have to do. And for you this morning, please hear this. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. And in the same way, he's sitting there saying, come, come to me. You're just returning to your creator. I've loved you every second of your existence. And I'm calling you to me. And for those of you, if that's you, he's saying, I've paid for all your sins. You're washed clean today. Just believe in Jesus and what he's done for you. 
Is that you? I want to give you an opportunity to respond in that. Would you just take a second and bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? I want to take just a quiet moment here together. And just take a second where you can respond to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those people you say, I've put my faith in Jesus, but I feel a thousand miles. I'm a Christian but I need to return back. And if that's you, no one's looking around, everyone's heads are bowed and eyes closed, but just so that you can draw a line in the sand, I want to just pray for you. And if you're one of those, if you're saying today, today is I need to return home, then I want just as a sign of dedication to, Je- to Jesus, to God saying, I'm returning, would you just slip your hand in the air and put it back down? You're a Christian saying, look, I, I need to return back to God. I'm- I feel so far away, but I need to come back today. I see it. Anyone else, you say, that's me. I I need to return back to him. Amen. Some of you are here and you're saying, look, I've never put my faith in Jesus, but I want to find salvation. I want to begin the relationship with God for the first time. You say, I want to believe. I want to believe in what Jesus did for me today. And if that's you, would you just, I just want to pray for you and as a sign that you're beginning that journey today, finding your forgiveness once and for all, Would you just slip your hand in the air and put it back down? I want to just pray for you this morning. That's you. You say, today is my day. I see it. Amen. Say, I want to put my faith in Jesus for the first time. If that was you, you put your faith in Jesus this morning, would you just pray this simple prayer after me? Just pray it in your heart between you and God. Say, God, thank you for paying for my sins. Thank you for washing me clean. Thank you for dying on the cross so that I could spend eternity with you in heaven. Thank you for providing a way for my salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.